it occurred to me to um, begin this evening by saying a little bit more about the um, last subject we were talking about at the end of the afternoon, about the um, um, the Bodhisattva vows and the Four Noble Truths. Um, one of the interesting things, if you ever spent time in, in um, different Buddhist tradition centers, monasteries, whether it's a Tibetan tradition or Chinese or Japanese, Korean, um, yeah, which I've done a little bit uh, over the years, that uh, during the, uh, the pujas, the, the chanting, you very often have both a, a recitation of the Bodhisattva vows and also a recitation of uh, what is called the, the Heart Sutra. And the Heart Sutra, um, probably many people are familiar with, the um, uh, part of it begins, or part of it goes, uh, form is emptiness, emptiness itself is form, form is not separate from emptiness, emptiness is not separate from form. So too feelings, perceptions, uh, formations, and consciousness. Um, so that's the, the Heart Sutra is uh, a teaching on, on emptiness, and it has parallels, some parallels within the, the Pali Canon. You can see where it derives or, or is related to some of the, the Pali teachings. So it's very interesting that you have the, both of these side by side in, uh, in these uh, different pujas in the northern Buddhist temples and monasteries, because um, whereas as I was dis- uh, sort of describing how the the four bodhisattva vows come from the Four Noble Truths. A part of the, the text of the Heart Sutra is there is no suffering, there is no origination, there is no cessation, there is no way. <laughs> there is no understanding and no attaining, for there is nothing to attain. Um, so uh, it's uh, rather, you might think, well, that's kind of going against the Buddha's teaching, isn't it? <laughs> But uh, it's not, really, because what is, it's uh, talking about um, the nature of emptiness and how also the, the four noble truths are, are noble truths. They're not absolute truths. So when the, the Buddha was um, putting these forth, these are, uh, say, um, teachings which are a means of contemplation. They're not, uh, he wasn't putting them out as sort of, uh, universal absolutes. But more, these are. Uh, this is a set of tools whereby we can examine our experience, <coughs> so that they are they're noble truths, um, meaning to say they are they're conditioned conventional truths, but they can lead us towards nobility. They can lead the, uh, the heart towards transcendence. They can lead the heart towards full realization. Therefore, they're noble, uh, rather than being absolute. If that makes sense to people. <laughs> So, uh, so then it's very intriguing to me how these two are side by side. You have on the one hand, uh, there is no suffering, no origination, no cessation, and no way. And then on the other hand, you know, side by side, you have uh, the, the, uh, the Four Noble Truths saying, this doesn't just apply to you as an individual, this applies to all beings. So that in these, these pujas, you have the, the Four Noble Truths is being, in a way, sort of unpacked and, and uh, teased out both to, to uh, look at its, uh, their transparency, looking at their emptiness, so these are conventional truths, they are empty of intrinsic substance, but also looking at their universality, how they apply uh, not just to this one being, but to, to all beings. And so that, uh, th- and this is my take on, on, on how that 
tradition had uh, all those traditions have arisen is because um, trying to in a way uh, illuminate the full implications of the Four Noble Truths. So that if we really uh, use the Four Noble Truths in the way that they're intended, then you know, us uh, Theravada types, we would see both their intrinsic emptiness and also their intrinsic universality. Um, so if we're handling them well, if you've been listening to Ajahn Sumedho for the last 30 years, like I have, <laughs> then you will, you will recognize that these are all elements of, of things that he has said many, many times over. And, uh, and points that that, uh, that he has made. So I feel that's a very useful area for, for contemplation, also because, speaking of fixed views, people say, well, I'm a Theravada, and what's all this Mahayanist rubbish? You know, <laughs> I'm right, they're wrong. <laughs> or maybe they're right and I'm wrong. You know? And we, 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 we take a, a, a fixed view, and then by grasping that fixed view, then dukkha ensues. <laughs> Dukkha yeah, comes from grasping. Yeah, that's first and second noble truth. So that uh, I, I just uh, offer that for cons- consideration, uh, sort of filling out that <coughs> that picture a little bit, and for uh, for people to to consider that, to explore, and also to see, aha, look, and perhaps that's how those these different traditions relate to each other, and that um, the. Uh, uh, there's not such a, a, a gulf uh, of, uh, of philosophical differences, uh, spiritual perspectives uh, in, embodied in the two traditions perhaps are a lot closer or a lot more in sympathy than we might have thought or might have realized or might have picked up from reading various pieces of Buddhist literature that where you know, one, one side is you know, grasped the, the, the A team, the Arahant team, or the B team, the Bodhisattva team, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, we we are all prone to to cheering for our team, you know, and uh, that's a, a very natural human instinct, A team, B team, and that uh, this is normal enough for us. But uh, the um, uh, you know the the Buddha's teaching, regardless of whether it's from the north or for the south, it is for the <laughs> for helping our hearts to be liberated. And to to increase and develop understanding, and um, to not increase our sense of division and alienation and uh, and uh, grasping to create you know, is not there to increase the causes of, of suffering within us. Uh, considering that the four noble truths. Um, as we were talking earlier today. I was also reminded of a, um, a point that, that Lumpur Sumedho frequently makes, how um, uh, after the Buddha's enlightenment, uh, it's often said that the, the Four Noble Truths, the, the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, the, the turning of the wheel of Dhamma, was the Buddha's first teaching. And Lumpur Sumedho is very fond of pointing out the fact that, well, no, it wasn't really his first teaching. That actually the first teaching that the Buddha gave was on the road, uh, on his way to Varanasi. And he encountered uh, another wanderer called Upaka along the way. And uh, as the story goes, uh, the, the Buddha was walking along, making his way to the deer park in Varanasi to meet up with his five former companions. And along the way, he, he met, coming in the opposite direction, this other wanderer called Upaka. And Upaka was very uh, struck by the appearance of the, the newly enlightened Buddha. He was um, this, this being walking towards him who was extremely tall, 
uh, very regal, wearing the rag robes of, a, of an ascetic wanderer, with this extraordinary radiance, this incredible brightness and serenity, this awesome uh, demeanor. And so um, I don't know what the, the, the local expression would have been, but basically Upaka thought, whoa. <laughs> and he said, who, who are you? Uh, who are you? Well, surely you must have had some kind of amazing experience, or you've you've realized some truth, or you've had some something's happened. I mean, your your face is so is so radiant, so so resplendent. Your your manner is so peaceful and serene, and uh, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, what is it that you've awoken to? Who's your teacher? What is it that you practice? Tell me, tell me. And then, um, as a uh, as uh, Lumpur Sumato is fond of saying, well, the, the Buddha just gave it to him with both barrels and said, well, yes, uh, I, I am, uh, uh, the reason that I, I, I look this way is because I've reached full and complete enlightenment. Uh, I don't have anybody who's my teacher. Uh, no one is my teacher. I've arrived at this state through my own realization. And in fact, I'm the only, the only enlightened being in all the world. So then, as one, when one encounters people on the street, you know, have the same kind of declaration, you say, okay, right, fine, fine, good, okay, and uh, great, great. Um, so Upaka did exactly that. So, well, good for you, friend, great, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy for you. Um, okay, bye-bye. And then, as the, the story goes, then wagging his head, you know, he uh, took off by a different path, and uh, they didn't meet again, apparently. So uh, um, the Buddha was a very quick learner, so he realized, hmm, <laughs> declaration of the absolute truth does not work. <laughs> but it was true, that, yes, he said, because you know, uh, part of the conversation was also, um, after he said that, then Upaka went, well, so... So, uh, are you claiming that you've you've realized deathlessness? And he says, "Yes, indeed, I've I've realized the deathless, and now now I'm on my way to Varanasi, to the capital of Kasi, to to beat the drum of deathlessness." So, <laughs> so Pakat, okay, fine, good, good for you, friend, good for you, and uh, and off he went. So the Buddha was uh, was quick on the quick on the uptake, and he realized, okay. So de- even though it's, that was true, that I have indeed awakened to deathlessness, I've realized the deathless state, the the ultimate reality. Uh, just declaring that to someone doesn't help them. So uh, by the time he got to Varanasi to the deer park, then he changed his tack completely, and so that uh, when he um, he came up with it. Came up to the the presence, the, the area where his five companions were gathered. Um, first of all, they were going to reject him, ignore him, because he he was the the, uh, the had been their teacher, but had had goofed off, had been eating ordinary food, yeah, whole entire bowls full of rice porridge, rather than just three grains a day the kind of ascetic practices they lived on. So they thought he'd gone soft, become indulgent, and had given up the spiritual path. So first of all, they thought, well, we, yeah, if, he comes, if he comes any closer, we just ignore him, don't pay any attention. But as he approached, they couldn't stop themselves. And they, 
against their own will, they jumped up and greeted him and made a place for him to, to sit down. And uh, and so then, um, yeah, the the Buddha spoke to them and and um, and uh, you know approached the subject a little bit more gently <laughs> and said that you know if uh, if uh, if you listen to what I got to say, then in no short time you you'll be able to. Uh, awaken to to the truth to the to the dhamma and they said well how can you how can anything you've got to say possibly help us to awaken you you gave up the ascetic life you gave up the spiritual path you you are a quitter yeah you goofed off you actually ate ordinary food bowls of mil- uh, milk rice and uh, how could you have possibly uh, realized anything and they as they do in buddhist texts they go back and forth three times over always do everything three times <laughs> Then finally, the Buddha says, <coughs> yeah. "Have I ever spoken to you like this before?" And they said, "No, venerable friend." He said, "So, <coughs> so, the deathless has been attained. I have realized the deathless. So, if you listen to me, then I will explain. Uh, and and in no short time, no long time, you'll you'll realize this yourself." And so then he explained the four noble truths uh, as this analytical teaching. So rather than than uh, sort of starting out from Though there is the ultimate reality, he started out from, well, why is it uh, that we don't experience total happiness all of the time? Yeah. We, we experience dukkha. Now, why is that? You know, in, a, in a sense, if there is an ultimate truth, if that is the fundamental reality of things, how come we're not totally happy all of the time? So he's, uh, he began the, the exposition through exploring the nature of dukkha and uh, the um, the other aspects of the teaching then uh, going through then into the cause of, of dukkha the cause of uh, dissatisfaction the um, the possibilities of that being uh, transcended or, or being free from that and then the methodology how to how to be free from that so it's also said that uh, the way he laid it out was um, Rather than trying to describe the state of perfect health, he uh, uh, or what the enlightened mind was like, or that uh, that uh, just just the very fact that that had been realized, he uh, he laid it out like a medical diagnosis uh, of his time. So the first thing is the symptom, dukkha. That's the the symptom of the spiritual malaise, and then the second part of the the diagnosis is the cause. Okay, what's what's the cause of that symptom? Yeah, Where does that come from? He identified that as craving, tanha. Then what's the prognosis? Okay, it's curable. <laughs> it, can, it can be cured. And, uh, and then how do you do that? What's the methodology? The treatment is the Eightfold Path. So he laid it out in a far more pragmatic and, uh, and uh, say accessible way. And then sure enough, as, as he gave that teaching, then Kandanya was the first one to get the... the uh, the, the inkling of the truth, uh, inkling of understanding, and he uh, awakened to the level of stream entry. Uh, but then it was only after he gave the teaching on, on selflessness, on anatta, that all five of them finally became uh, fully awakened, became arahants. And when we... Um, Consider this word, and this the theme of this retreat is uh, dying and death. But reflecting on this um, as we were running up to it and talking with Joseph and 
pondering these themes, uh, I also felt, well, deathlessness is another uh, element uh, because it's uh, the point of, as we said a few times, the point of exploring and understanding dying and death is, uh, is to learn how to, to understand it, to, to get beyond it, and that this is, in essence, the, the whole point of, of looking at these uh, is not to, um, uh, say, buy into them or, or uh, reify them or to, um, to uh, attach to them, but to, by looking at dying and death, then we help. We are training the heart, helping our own hearts to awaken to that which is uh, beyond dying, beyond death. And as I, I think I mentioned a, a few days ago, maybe it was on the Mindful Aging Weekend or earlier this uh, this retreat. Uh, as Joseph has pointed out, it all it all starts to blur together. <laughs> the aging process being what it is. So that uh, in in one of the Buddha's descriptions of his own spiritual career. He, he reflects, and this I find this is a very powerful and, and direct teaching. He talks about his own considerations before his enlightenment, when he was still the prince living in the palace, and he thought, why should I, being subject to birth, aging, ailment, to sickness and death, also seek after those things which too are subject to birth, aging, ailment, sickness, and subject to death? Why not instead seek after that which is unborn, unaging, unailing, the deathless? So I decided I will seek after the unborn, the unaging, the unailing, the deathless. <laughs> Very simple, logical flow. <laughs> and that's uh, again in the wonderful Majima Nikaya, I've been quoting from endlessly, I think it's Sutta number 26, that one the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the, the noble quest, talking about his own uh, spiritual search. So to, to me, that, that's a very succinct and beautiful logic. Why should I, being subject to birth, aging, sickness and death, also chase after things which are, uh, are bound up in the same way? Why do I do that? Why not seek after that which is not bound up with those? Now, when we consider a word like like deathlessness or the deathless, the amata dhamma or the amara, like amaravati, the deathless realm, it can seem a bit sort of re- remote or, or mysterious to us. It's not the sort of everyday conversation like when you're down at Tesco's, you know, <laughs> or uh, <laughs> chatting with your family about uh, yeah, holiday opportunities or <laughs> talking about the weather. You know, deathlessness does not come up. It's, a, it's an uncommon term. It's a Buddhist jargon. Obviously, Amravati, we talk about it a lot because it's, kind of, it's uh, part of the territory. Um, but it, so, uh, uh, it can be uh, unclear to us what that means or, or it can be vague what that is pointing to. But I feel it's also helpful to, to consider that, to explore that. What, what is that dimension of our being that's being referred to there? Uh, one of the, the favorite passages, or in a way the, the motto of Amravati, when the, uh, this place was first opened back in 84, 85, then uh, the, um, one of the most uh, frequently quoted passages by Lumpur Sumedho was uh, this verse from the Dhammapada, uh, 
Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. Appamada amatapadang. So the word translated as mindfulness there, appamada, is also you can translate as heedfulness, which is a slightly more kind of oomph, <laughs> slightly more comprehensive. Uh, so it's more not just sati, but uh, mindfulness conjoined with wisdom, a sort of uh, the most profound and, and complete kind of mindfulness, appamada. Appamada amatapadang. Heedfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The heedful never die. Appamada namianti. The mindful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. So that's a fairly blunt statement, isn't it? <laughs> now when the, when the Buddha says that the mindful never die, the mindful do not die, Appamada namianti. That, that doesn't mean to say that if you're mindful, your body's not going to stop breathing. <laughs> Even the Buddha's body stopped breathing. So what did he mean when he said the, the, the heedful, the mindful, never die or do not die? Well, uh, th- this is uh, uh, talking about that kind of, um, as I was saying, uh, the kind of ego death or psychological death that... Uh, that quality of freedom of the heart that's not tied up to self-centered concerns, to, it's not tied to conditioned habits and conditioned thinking. So that when he says the, the mindful never die, then it's, uh, it's not talking about uh, just our bodies, but it's talking about our attitude, uh, uh, inner qualities. It'll be what how I, I know it, how I interpret it, <laughs> how I understand it. So uh, many different people can can look at this in different ways. They say, "Well, hang on a minute. I don't think that's what it means." And that uh, and that, yeah, uh, there there are different ways that one could relate to that. So say you know the um, when we say that the the mindful never die, or or there is um, freedom from birth and death. You know, there, there are ways that, and you, you see this written about in, in spiritual literature, sometimes in Buddhist literature, how that kind of term is taken to mean, well, as we were having the discussion earlier on today, no, it's what this is really talking about is having life after life, like you know, Raymond Moody's books, you know, life after life. It doesn't mean that, uh, yes, okay, you know, this, this life comes to an end, but there's a life after this, and a life after, and a life after, and a life after, you know, that... Uh, there's uh, uh, you know we have one life but you know but many bodies, and it means that that uh, what it really means is that life after life after life, or um, somebody gave me a copy of a Brian Weiss book you know many lives many masters um, these people are famous for the sort of doing uh, psychological work and therapeutic work with um, past life and future life uh, explorations and such like. <coughs> So it it, uh, it might be that that's what that that is referring to, or that can can be one aspect of it, and so that um, that uh, you know that 
we uh, uh, we can think of that as a, as a possibility or as an aspect of you know the Buddhist understanding of things, and that uh, and these kind of practices or, or talking about you know past lives, future lives, present life, you know, that uh, we can we can hold it in that way, or we can see that that things uh, you know, work in that way. There's a some of you might have noticed out in the in the Buddha Grove. That uh, patch of oak trees and yew trees in the, the corner of the field with a little stone stupa in the center. And uh, there's a, a little plaque at the foot of the stupa. And some of you, I'm sure, with it, related to the family camp and the family uh, uh, program here will be very familiar. Um, as a little memorial to this uh, child, this little boy, Declan. And uh, the plaque simply has... Uh, uh, Declan's name and the dates of his his birth and his death, and just the words "Who died?" Declan, who died? No question mark. <laughs> Declan, who died? And uh, one of the the reasons that it says that um, in that way is because of the experience of Declan's mother, uh, Pamela uh, Pamela Bruckshaw. And Declan was, uh, um, I think, not quite two years old when he passed away, and he actually died during the family summer camp here back in the the late 80s. And he was probably born with a brain tumor that slowly grew during his first year or or so. And uh, his parents had no idea that 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 was the the case, or he was suffering from that. And it was only during that, that family summer camp that he started to show some symptoms. He was a bit sort of sickly and dizzy and um, they didn't really know what it was wrong when he went to the local hospital they said oh you know he's just car sick from the journey up from Brighton you know don't don't worry you know but then he came back and forth went back and forth and uh, the mother was uh, was quite concerned and then suddenly you know Declan stopped breathing and they realized oh this is a major emergency and they tried to rush him off to um, to um, Great Ormond Street Hospital uh, but he he uh, he passed away there, and then they found that after he died, that he had a, a tumor that was pressing on his brain stem, so that it was there was really very, very little that they could have done anyway. Um, but the re- reason I mentioned it was because um, how Pamela describing her experience and talking with her during those those times, I was here at Amaravati at that time, and talking with her and and uh, what she'd been going through, and she. She had this very uh, extraordinary experience uh, that she said when both when Declan was born and when he died, and she said when he was first born, she had uh, she held him in uh, in her arms, and she had this experience of this enormously large and old being. And she looked into his his eyes, and he looked at her, and she felt that she felt like there was this very very old, very big being. And she was just in a state of, of um, wonder and and sort of uh, love and affection for this being, but the, uh, and but it was such a strange, uh, same, strange quality to it. And then suddenly he shrank, and <laughs> became a little baby. And so uh, she, uh, she she was um, obviously just having given birth. It was you know and recovering from the all of the, the kind of extreme feelings of that, but it was very striking, and she was left with this feeling of, what was that about? <laughs> or where did that come from, or how was that? 
And then as she held him at the hospital in Great Ormond Street as he was dying, she said the exact opposite happened. That holding her little baby and her dear son who was just fading away, then he grew, he sort of expanded. And there was again this, this strange feeling of this very, very old, very still, ancient being, very large, very you know, huge presence. And again, this, this eye contact. And, uh, and then he was gone. So she felt that uh, it was more like, almost like a visitation in her life. This being had come into their lives and had be been in the role of their child for a couple of years and then had moved on. So that then uh, she, she recounted this to me in just in the days after he died and talking about this. And so then when we, we were making the memorial for him, or the, the little stupa was completed, and uh, part of the reason why that was dedicated to Declan was because it was already under construction. Uh, Sister Siripanya was building it uh, from the Flintstones in the local field just to, to making the stupa. And then Declan was sort of, he, he had, he had a, a, a good hour or two each day during the afternoon and his, he and his mom used to like to potter out to the field and watch Siripanya making the stupa. And he'd like to put a few rocks in place. And uh, so he contributed to, to building it. And so then when, when he passed away, then it was very natural to dedicate it to him. But then Pamela was, uh, and her husband, Jez, were um, thinking about a, a plaque to put there. And this is what Pamela was moved to put, was who died? Yeah. Declan, who died? And, and no question mark, but just that uh, you, know, you can read it as a question, you can read it as a statement. But because of that strange, mysterious quality that, yes, somebody died, but yes, there was this, there was this life that was coming from somewhere and, and carrying on somewhere. So sometimes people will, will look at the idea of deathlessness as being that kind of continuity. As a, and I feel this is what the, the, the Buddha's teaching is pointing to. Um, and that uh, certainly there are um, ways that, you, that we can hold it like that. Um, but... Uh, uh, when we we uh, we uh, consider it more closely, it's rather than deathlessness being a a, a, a long continuity. Uh, I feel it's more uh, more real, more accurate, and genuine. Just uh, if we really consider that what the Buddha is saying and and look at our own experience, that it's more to do with not just a, a long continuity of time. But stepping outside of time, this, uh, this like we've been referring a lot to the, the apparent here and now, timeless, santitiko akaliko, quality of Dhamma. And so when, when we talk about the deathless, it's talking about that timeless quality of, of our being, that, that, that dimension of reality, which is outside of time, which is, uh, say, uh, unlocated. It's not in the realm of space or time but is always here and now. <laughs> and this, is, this can be frustrating to the thinking mind. Say, well, how can it be both here and now and outside of time? That's ridiculous. That doesn't make sense to me. And th but this is the thinking mind talking. And, and just at uh, tea time, um, chatting with uh, Pavakro and, and uh, George, who's visiting us at, at the moment. Um, one of these, uh, uh, Lumpo Cha used to have these little conundrums that he would like to, to put to people. 
So, uh, in the the last couple of years of his life, he would, uh, as I was mentioning the other day, he would he would ask people, "Have you ever seen still water? Have you ever seen flowing water?" And people say, "Yeah, seen still water, seen flowing water." Well, have you ever seen still flowing water? And, and as I was describing, he would say, "That's what the mind is like." There's the quality of flowing, there's the perceptions and thoughts and feelings and moods, they come and they go and they change. But that which knows them, that which is aware, is not going anywhere, it's ever-present. So therefore, outside of the realm of space and time, therefore, perfectly still, so that the mind is like still flowing water. And the other conundrum that uh, Joseph was reminding us of at tea time was how uh, Lumpur would often say, if you can't go forward, and you can't go back, and you can't stand still, where do you go? Joseph can do it in time much better. <laughs> <laughs> the Buddha Dhamma is not, a, and that, this was in the, the last message that he wrote to, um, actually Stephen wrote it. That uh, I remember the, the the last letter that Lumpur Cha sent, or the, I think the only letter that Lumpur Cha ever sent to Ajahn Sumedho, was he'd. Um, I remember we were at Chidhurst, and this letter arrived through the through the post, and it was in Stephen's hand, and it said, uh, "Dear Ajahn Sumedho, you're not going to believe this, but Lumpur asked me to take dictation today." <laughs> and so it was in Stephen's Stephen's hand, and he said. Um, uh, it was like Lumpur's final instructions to Ajahn Sumedho, and he said, um, Whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building Bharami. The Buddha Dhamma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This Sumedho is your place of non-abiding. Do you remember writing that? <laughs> so that uh, that was like the final instructions from Lumpur Cha to Lumpur Sumedho. Okay, okay, Sumedho, you can't go forward, you can't go back, you can't stand still. Where do you go? <laughs> and to the logical mind, the thinking mind, you go, uh, well, sideways, you know, up, down. <laughs> but uh, what he's pointing to is that as long as we conceive ourselves as this separate individual being that me existing in time and space with this body and living in this spot and as long as we cling to that identity uh, you know, searching past and future and clinging to that dimension then we are we're, we're lost there's no answer there's no solution to the conundrum but when it, it, there's a letting go there's a non-identification with the body with time with location then that in that letting go, there's a resolution. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the only way that the that conundrum can be solved. So it's pointing to that uh, letting go of our habits of identification. So when we talk about the 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 deathless, it's talking about that that timeless quality of being, that the ever present now, and uh, in a sense that that unentangled participation, that unentangled uh, awareness, that, that which is fully uh, attentive to and, uh, and unified with the present moment, but unconfused by it. 
to tell another story from uh, actually it's around that that era here at uh, Amravati. So there was a, a Thai woman who uh, came from a, a Muslim family. There are a small Muslim community in Thailand. I think 98% of Thai people are, are Buddhists, but there's a few Muslims and a f- even fewer Christians. So this, uh, this woman, uh, Amina, uh, was from a, a Muslim family, but she was a very devoted student of, of uh, Ajahn Sumedho back in the, the early days of Chidhurst. And, um, but her, uh, her family were very resistant to her being involved in Buddhism, so she kept it fairly quiet. And then she was diagnosed with cancer, and uh, so she didn't think that she had much longer to live. So she asked permission from her family if she could uh, shave her head and uh, become a, a nun in this community. And so, um, because she was, it looked like she was not going to live very much longer, they, they granted her that. And so she, uh, she sh- uh, shaved her head and, and took the eight precepts and, and came to live with us at Chidhurst. And then uh, after a, f- uh, a couple of months, her cancer went into remission. And so then, to our, our great grief, but um, you know, that's the way things are, her family said, okay, well, if you're not going to die, <laughs> we can't have you embarrassing the family, you know. You've got to leave the Buddhists. And so, to her credit, she said, okay, you know, that's what, that's what you wish. So she took leave of the monastery and went back to, to live in London again. But uh, uh, as these things go, then uh, about three or four years later, the cancer came back. And so then um, by that time, Amravati had opened up and we invited her here to come and spend her last days. So uh, she had a a room in the the nuns' vihara and um, her dying process was was very, uh, very protracted, very, very uh, uh, long. Uh, Over many, many weeks, she was fading. And uh, over and over again, we thought any minute she was about to go any minute now, and then we'd all gather around, and people, her friends would come from London, and we'd all come together, and we'd do you know, a load of chanting, and then she'd recover. <laughs> 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 and everyone would go home again. And, and, and this went on several times over. Um, and so her room became like this sort of alternative shrine room. So all of us were spending hours and hours and hours just sitting in there with her, and just meditating or just um, you know, being there to, to chant. And there was like, um, eventually there was like a 24-hour vigil going in her room. Because, but we, we never knew when she was, she was going to go and she was sort of coming to the surface and fading and coming to the surface. And when she was, uh, when she was in normal consciousness, she was fairly articulate and could communicate a bit and then she'd go under for a while. So this had gone on for many, many weeks. And, and uh, this was a... I think she was really the first person that I'd been close to when they were actually dying in my life. Uh, and um, the uh, this was um, one one night then, and again there'd been a scare that evening and a whole group of her friends had come out from London and they'd all come to say goodbye and it was all very tearful and then, and then she rallied again. So, you know, we realized, okay, it's about 10 o'clock, okay, Oh, she's breathing strongly. <laughs> she's she's back with us again. Okay, so her friends all disappeared, and then uh, a few of us stayed on that night. And so um, it was about half past one in the morning. As myself and uh, Ajahn Chandapala, Tan Chandapala, as he was then, my, uh, myself, one other monk, and then there was uh, 
Sister Jitapala, the Swiss Jitapala, the original one, and another sister in the room. And, and so we've been through this so many times. Uh, and also we're all a bit sleep deprived. <laughs> many, many weeks of these, these uh, uh, all day, all night vigils. And uh, so I was sitting there in the middle of the night, sit, just sitting meditating and just hearing the sound of her breath. And suddenly, Sister Jitapala said, she's gone. And my first thought was, hang on a minute, nothing happened. And something in me had been kind of expecting the, the wind of death to move through the room, or the f- curtains to, to flutter, and <laughs> some, something, or a little tingle to flow through the system. And then, it was a very, very, it was a quick succession of thoughts, that and then first that first thought was wait a minute nothing happened, and then uh, that that uh, that thought faded, and then what hit me was that uh, this very um, sort of wordless realization that that my awareness of her body not breathing was exactly the same as her awareness of her body not breathing, and that. Uh, there, uh, it was not irrational. It wasn't an idea. It was like a, a sort of direct recognition. It was just, uh, and in that that kind of sleepy middle of the night mixture of fuzziness and and intuitive clarity, it was it was inarguably obvious that what she was experiencing uh, was the same as what I was experiencing and the others in the room. That there was a body breathing and there was a body not breathing. That's all. And uh, it was so vividly clear that uh, um, it just hit me like a like a train. That oh, of course, duh. <laughs> how how could that really be different? And the fact that uh, the the idea that that awareness might be dependent on the life of the body just seemed like a completely absurd idea off of the 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 edges of possibility. <laughs> And the fact that her body was no longer alive, it was obvious that it had nothing to do with whether there was awareness or not. And that was what was uh, apparent at that time. So that uh, that experience and that that kind of um, clarity of seeing how the um, the body's alive, the body's breathing, the body's not breathing, the body's not alive. That which knows the body, breathing or not breathing, is outside of uh, the the whole cycle of birth and death. It's not it's not involved in it. It's not caught up in that. It's not fused with that. It's it's uh, has a, a separate reality. And then it, it's just strong. Oh, that's what <laughs> that's what this is mean. That's what this means. That the 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 awareness is a refuge. Or the the awareness is. Um, transcendent because right there in that experience oh of course the awareness is the awareness of birth and death that's coming and going that which knows the coming and going is not coming and going aha so when we talk about uh, deathlessness um, we talk about the, the, the deathless state 
then this is uh, what I, I would suggest is the most helpful way to understand it and to, to realize that this is pointing to this, this quality of, of pure awareness, this quality uh, of knowing. And that, in a way, that, that, that knowing is the attribute of that deathless quality. It's like the, the uh, in a way, the, the function. If, the, if that quality of the, the deathless Dhamma is the substance, then the awareness is its function. Does that make sense? That's how it, it, uh, it works. The, the Dhamma is the substance and the, the, the Buddha is the function. The Buddha arises from the Dhamma. The awareness arises from that, that uh, deathless reality, uh, the fundamental way that things are. So I, I wanted to, to share this um, to help, say, bring this into a, 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 an everyday reality. That obviously this was a, 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 an unusual event or a, 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 the death of a dear friend and the, uh, the, um, the kind of um, unexpected quality of it. It makes it seem a bit remote or mysterious or this was you know, <laughs> a story told in a Dhamma talk. But it's uh, the point of it is that it's po- it's addressing a quality that's already present in your own heart. It's, it's an intrinsic attribute of, of of our minds. It's always here, that deathless quality, that that uh, pure awareness. It's always here. It's always accessible to us. And so when we say the words Buddhang Saranangachami, essentially what that's pointing to is in choosing to, uh, or intending, setting the direction to, to um, appreciate life from that perspective, to, uh, to be seeing life and to, to be knowing li- life and to be participating in life from that perspective of unentangled awareness, uh, to be that puru, the one who knows, to, to take refuge in Buddha is to be that very knowing. So when we say the words, Buddhang Saranangachami, it's reminding ourselves of that potential, that possibility. And that why also that is a refuge. A refuge is a safe place. And uh, again, Ajahn Chah would be um, quite adamant that he and, and Ajahn Buddha Dasa in particular would, would speak in these terms. Sometimes quite shockingly, you know, Lumpur Chah would say things like, you know, the Buddha that's the real refuge is not, the, not Gautama Buddha, the great teacher who lived two and a half thousand years ago. You know, the, the Buddha, which is the refuge, is this very quality of, of awareness, this very knowing, the puru, the one who knows. This is a, a refuge is a safe place here and now. It's not a, 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 something that's over there or remote in time or place. A refuge is, is a sanctuary, it's a safe place for us now, here. Something that we can, we can use. It's not just a, a, an inspiring idea about another place, another time, another person. But what makes something a refuge is its accessibility, its reality. And so that um, in terms of these, these themes, these teachings, um, the way that we, uh, we transcend the, the realm of birth and death, even though that is kind of grandiloquent language, <laughs> uh, is simply being awake to, that, the, to the, the present reality that which knows the mood of feeling irritated or the feeling excited, that which is aware of the mood of being hot or cold, the, the sensations of comfort and discomfort, that very simple 
quality of, of awareness, the, the 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 more that that is, uh, say, not identified with as a, as a personality, as a, as an individual entity, the more that that awareness is allowed to be uh, unbounded and not uh, non-personalized then the more fully and completely we are able to live in accord with with life and then our responses to to life come from a place of of attunement so when the buddha says mindfulness is the path to the deathless heedlessness is the path to death the mindful never die what that means is that the mindful never die is when there's true mindfulness, the true upamada, true heedfulness, then the heart is not getting entangled and identified with like I I am this you know, I am this body, I am this memory, I you know, I like, I want, I can't stand. <laughs> if you ask me, I think. <laughs> yeah. That uh all that I making and my making is, is let go of. So that when the if there's true heedfulness, true mindfulness, then we don't die because we're not being born. <laughs> We're not being born into uh, praise and criticism, into gain and loss, into success and failure, into health and sickness, into our social roles, our identities uh, as a woman or as a man, as old, as young, as tall, as short. That because of not being born, then we're not dying. <laughs> so that, that uh, this talking about uh, an attitudinal change, there's a shift in attitude. And so that Appamada uh, namianti, the mindful do not die. <laughs> it's because of that uh, that quality of of clarity, that quality of of not grasping fear and hope, not grasping success and failure, not grasping gain and loss, not grasping health and sickness, not creating those identities. The heedless are as if dead already. <laughs> it's a bit blunt, isn't it? Like the, that uh, like, you know, it makes us think of zombies. But so when I, I was first given, first ordained at Wat Bapong at Ajahn Chah's monastery, and the next morning one of the monks, um, but actually there was a secretary, Ajahn Wirapon, said, "So, so what's your new name?" And I said, "Amaro." Oh, Amaro, very good, non-dead. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, had that same immediate mental image of the <laughs> a kind of zombified. Um, but uh, when the Buddha says the heedless are as if dead already, rather than conjuring up a, a, a sort of jokey image of zombies, it's uh, when he says dead already, it means we're living on reactive instincts. It's living on reactive impulses, chasing after what we like, running away from what we dislike. Uh, believing our opinions are absolute realities. Believing that you know the A team really is intrinsically better than the B team, or vice versa. <laughs> that this is uh, what he means by being dead already. That we're our heart is is wedded to, embedded in the the all the beginnings and endings, ups and downs, the successes and failures, all the births and deaths. By unifying with that, then. With success, then hooray, you get drunk on that, and then it changes. Oh, <laughs> it's all over! What a disaster! Yeah. The uh, this is what he he would call being dead already, and so that uh, 
when we, we use this kind of language, being free from birth and death or, or getting off the wheel, it can sound very grand or remote or special or difficult, you know, far away. But it's, it's talking about this very life, this very mind, and the capacity we have you know, in, in this moment to fully be with all of the ups and downs of our life, to, uh, uh, to, to know them, to uh, attend to them, to attune to them, but to, to not be identified with that, to not be entangled, to not be confused. So then, the, in a mysterious way, then the potentiality of our life is able to flourish and uh, to uh, reach its fullness in, a far more, in, a, in, a in an unobstructed way. That uh, once we get out of the way of our own life, <laughs> we are able to fulfill ourselves more completely, if that makes sense. So that when it's me being busy trying to get it all right <laughs> and afraid that it's going to go wrong, then we trip over our own feet and it, and it all goes askew. So these are a few reflections on the nature of death and deathlessness and... Um, but please don't take these to be sort of definitive. Uh, as we were having this reflective exercise today with writing your own obituaries and, uh, and uh, epitaphs, then also I would encourage taking a, a simple teaching like that, the verse from the, the Dhammapada, mindfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness is the path to death, the mindful never die, the heedless are as if dead already. Just to take that, or just take a part of it, like just a simple phrase like, the mindful, the heedful never die. And just ask yourself, what does that say to me? How do I, how do I feel that to, to, to be? What, what does that um, say within me? How does that come to life within me? To, uh, to explore you know, those kind of teachings, or that that, that passage from the uh, the noble quest uh, that sutta why should I being subject to birth aging sickness and death also seek after other things which are similarly subject to birth aging sickness and death ask yourself that question see what comes up well actually I'll give you a list you know so just to explore and to, to, to see how those, those very principles, uh, how they come to life within us and to, to help us to understand our conditioning, uh, understand you know, the, the person that we make ourselves to be and how we, we can, uh, through that understanding, through that, say, becoming acquainted and familiarizing ourselves with the conditioning that, that is here, then the heart can be freed from it. We can rec we can let th let that go, and then when there's when that conditioning that identification is let go of, then to be able to 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 taste to know what that the heart free from clinging is like. Uh, what is the the uh, what is that like? Because one of the another one of the very simple beautiful statements of the the Buddha is. Uh, I'm not sure where this passage comes, but it starts off with Ananda and another of the monks having a debate about the nature of deathlessness. And they're going back and forth and back and forth, and then, as they usually do in these things, they say, let's go and ask the Master. 
because they can't come to any conclusion. So they go to the Buddha, and then Ananda, as he always does in these things, says, Venerable Sir, you know, we were having this discussion about the nature of, of, of the deathless state, so would you be so kind as to explain that to us? And the, the lead-up gives you the feeling, like, okay, now the Buddha's, you know, better settle down, because the Buddha's going to really lay it out in great detail. But what he says is, the cessation of grasping is deathlessness. That's it. <laughs> the cessation of grasping is deathlessness. So if all that I've said this evening sounds a bit, you know, a bit too much and a bit more involved than you'd like, just take something, grasp it, and then stop grasping. There it is. <laughs> So to take a simple phrase, the cessation of grasping is deathlessness. And explore that. See that. Know that for yourself. Mm.